So one groundhog sees a shadow and the other one doesn't. What's that about? What does it mean for the rest of this winter? I think it's never going to end. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and back today, Chris Warnowski. Lots of big news for Monday. We have a pretty stacked agenda today, huh? Sure yep. do. <laughs> okay. Happy Groundhog Day. Yeah, happy Groundhog Day. <laughs> Let's, uh, I'm just not going to go there because every Now, one thing there. that's guaranteed is weather in February will be awful. Why don't people just realize that? It's always the case. And it started awful. I mean, the, the National <laughs> Weather Service was telling us yesterday there's very little snow coming. And I'm looking out the window going, it's coming down an inch an hour. And I guess they finally did look out their window because Laura said they tweeted a picture and then suddenly said, oh. It was literally a video outside their office on 480. And all of a sudden there was like a severe weather statement. But hey, we are getting a polar vortex next weekend. So about to yeah. get worse. Yeah. Well, look outside, guys. The sun is out, and here we are inside recording a podcast. Chris so. Wernowski, the optimist of this podcast <laughs> Mr. today. Sunshine. Okay, let's begin. How does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine want to spend a billion dollars to pull Ohio out of the pandemic? And is part of it getting people to move here? Jane Cahoon, usually the budget introductions are not that interesting. <laughs> I mean, they have some policy things in them, and you know that the legislature is never going to go with it. But this was very, very different than most of the budgets we've seen over the years. It, it of course, does not solve school funding, because why would we? But but there, were big, there was big news in this about what he wants to do. So let's talk a little bit about it. First, the billion dollars to pull people out of the pandemic. How would he spend that? Well, that money, which, first of all, as you said, is it's thanks to the federal government mostly, but that's going to include $460 million on grants for small businesses that are hardest hit by the pandemic, including bars and restaurants, other small businesses, lodging establishments, indoor entertainment venues, and new businesses. And then there's $450 million for, for infrastructure projects, including expanding broadband internet access for underserved areas. And they said that's largely going to be in rural Ohio, although we know there are urban needs there too. $70 million for job retraining. And as you said, perhaps one of the most intriguing parts of this is $50 million for an ad campaign trying to persuade people to move to Ohio, particularly from higher cost states. DeWine and the Lieutenant Governor John Houston said they, they see a big opportunity here because people on, you know, the higher cost coasts, it, it's been made clear during the pandemic where people have been working at home that, you know, they want to reconsider where they live and maybe go to a to a lower cost place. But I where the weather is so nice in February. Right. <laughs> I, I actually I like that part of this. But but let's go back to the money that that's for small business. So that's just writing checks to businesses that have had difficulty, like restaurants and, and things like that? Well, they, they called them grants. So I assume they've had some smaller scale programs where, where bars and restaurants and other businesses could apply for these grants. I assume it's going to work the same way, but they didn't release any details on that. So I, I'm not positive. I mean, that's a lot of money to just a lot put of in money. the hands yeah. of private businesses lot of chance for corruption and bad things to happen there. It's a great idea, right? All of these restaurants, especially in bars, who through no fault of their own were crippled by this thing and a bunch of other industries as well. It, it would be nice if 
if there was some way to help them get through this crisis, it's just, it's the government and it's a lot of money. And so <laughs> you instantly are going, okay, how are you going to give that out? And who's going to be deciding who wins and who loses? Lots of scrutiny needed there. The one that, that kind of threw me was the $250 million for increasing broadband access to be focused mostly in rural areas. It's like, what are you talking about? The east side of Cleveland is filled with people, densely populated, that don't have broadband access. AT&T doesn't run fiber there because the people can't afford it. So they, they don't have that access. Why would he go out of his way to say, I'm giving this to the rural communities? Is this another thing from, from the state government where they're sticking it to the cities and, and giving to the rural areas? Well, once again, we don't have we don't have details of that, but it's something we're going to look into to see. I'm sure it's got to include something for the urban areas. We'll we'll just see if it's lopsided or what it is. We, Listen to what you just said. I'm sure it's got to include something for the urban areas. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll throw a few nickels their way while we run broadband into we'll unpopulated see. parts. And that, that one just needs a lot of scrutiny. I mean, it's great to increase broadband access, but. We know that in our urban areas where there are a lot more people, they're, they're hurting. I mean, just go to any library and look at the people parked there trying to tap into the Wi-Fi. I was a little bit surprised at that. Okay, then our questions on getting people to move here. So <laughs> I so, love this part. I'm so glad you want to talk about it. Right. Well, <laughs> because largely you want to get young people to move here. And the question right. came up. Why would they want to when we're such an ass backwards state when it comes to <laughs> our politics? The state keeps passing very anti-progressive laws and gun laws right. and abortion laws and just about everything the legislature do says to young people, don't come here. We're a state for ancient people. Well, right. The good news is, is if you move here and live in the middle of nowhere, you'll have broadband. <laughs> <laughs> what did Dwayne have to say when he was confronted well, with that Well, it's question? funny because, you know, he got pushback like from, from both sides on this with some conservatives saying this is like pork spending and it should stop immediately. But he basically put him in the position of saying, and I can't believe I heard Mike DeWine utter these words, that Ohio is a progressive state. Um, as you said, you know, he, he really got slammed by people like house minority leader, Amelia Sykes, who pointed out to these, to these same laws that you just talked about with, you know, guns and abortion. And also it's important that for years, the legislature has refused to pass a law protecting LGBTQ people from housing and workplace discrimination. So you can imagine how some young people might feel about moving here, but DeWine insisted Ohio's a welcoming place. And as I said, he said it's a progressive place. He said, I don't care who you are. We want you to come to Ohio. It's a progressive state. And it's a state that has its fiscal house in order. And then Houston jumped in there and did like, I think, a little cleanup on aisle four saying, as the governor mentioned, we have small towns with conservative values and we have cities with progressive values. Whatever you want, we've got it. And We're the on the flag, man. We're <laughs> on the flag. The, the conservatives in those little towns are our overlords in the urban areas. The urban areas have no control. You know what they ought to do with some of that $50 million? They ought to do a survey of the people they're aiming to bring here to ask them what they look for. Oh, I love it. I do. love it. Because otherwise, you're wasting your money. You know, you go and say, come to Ohio where we're is, we've become so ridiculous in our laws that nobody young wants to be here. 
It's just not, now, it's there a, are a lot of young conservatives. We don't want to just, you know, dismiss really? that thought. Uh-huh. But, uh, I, where, where are they? Where are they? <laughs> well, this is Laura Johnson. A couple of years ago, Columbus had like a pretty successful big campaign. Are they like learning from what Columbus did where they put like ads at D.C. and stuff like that? Well, mm-hmm. but since then, you know, Columbus police have <laughs> treated protests. Oh, but I think the big thing, Columbus, you know, I think if you're going to do that, you need to put a lot more money in our state universities so you can attract people and then get right. them to stay. Right. Our universities have become cost prohibitive. Our laws have become as non-progressive as they can be. Really, I think you, it's 50 million is a lot of dollars, mm-hmm. although the Republicans are going to block it. But they ought to start with a survey. What would it take to get you to move to Ohio? I think... Beyond that, I think you need to look at how some of these laws that we're talking about, how, how the gun laws and the anti-abortion stuff and the, the anti-LGBTQ stuff, how that keeps companies from coming here. You know, it's not just a matter of, you know, well, attracting young people, but, you like, know, you, but, young startup companies, but young startup companies, you know, they, they look at that kind of stuff. How do you and, know that? What are you basing that on? I haven't ever seen a study that says that. And I can actually, see you have say it's not true. You have seen examples of companies staying out of states with less progressive laws that and and being and pressuring lawmakers into into abandoning anti LGBTQ laws. I mean, it happened in Georgia, you know, with the big. Yeah, didn't it happen in North Carolina too with the the bathroom, bathroom. thing? Or and, and, so, and, and so you know, you know, we don't really have our industry here doesn't really have that leverage or at least it doesn't use it when it comes. Well, to could that. I, could I say something about that? Yeah, we're just, tight, though, this uh, anti-discrimination bill that they've been trying to get passed. The Ohio chamber of commerce has gotten behind that a major, major business group, but yeah, but the some, legislators are too busy trying yeah. to arrest Mike DeWine because he's not conservative enough. Go yeah, ahead, right. Bring all those young people to Ohio. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did First Energy finally blink in the battle over the corrupt HB6, which passed in a bribery scheme paid for by $60 million from the utility? Chris Ranowski, I'm very skeptical of this, but it does look like the, the, one of the most lucrative parts of this, this corruption for First Energy might be going away. Right. So apparently the company has agreed to halt the controversial decoupling policy that allowed it to collect hundreds of millions of dollars from Ohio ratepayers in exchange for Attorney General Dave Yost dropping a legal challenge to that policy. The agreement removes a significant provision in House Bill 6 that essentially would have allowed First Energy to charge ratepayers an estimated $102 million this year alone to guarantee the company a yearly revenue that matched 2018, which which was one of its most profitable years on record. And by tying revenue to such a lucrative year, HB6 was, as, as Chuck Jones put it, essentially takes about one third of our company. And I think it makes it somewhat recession proof. So Yost said the decoupling provision still remains part of the state law, but First Energy has agreed to file with the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio to set the decoupling rate at zero. In exchange, uh, Yost's office said it would drop a legal motion challenging the provision and pause other court challenges to HB6 until the end of the criminal cases against ex-Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and allies make their way through the courts. The thing that I'm skeptical about here is that it's still on the books. And Mm -hmm. when they say they zero it out, does that mean that it resets at this year or is it tied to another year? I I just, if, if this is bad legislation, get rid of the legislation, you know, and also 
Yost. The legislature won't do that. Sorry, this is <laughs> right again. They're too busy trying to arrest Mike Mike DeWine. Yes, right. <laughs> but does this? I, I I just have questions about this agreement of what the permanence is. You know, is this does this just postpone the collection for a couple years until they hope the fever goes away for how angry people are about this corruption and it and it comes back in? I mean, until it's gone or until they forever renounce it or something. I'm still skeptical. I just I don't feel like we have enough information to know that this for real. I'm also surprised Dave Yost didn't make repaying the hundred plus million they got from decoupling last year part of it. I mean, they've already gotten an extra hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars. That's their bribery money plus 40. Right. They've gotten completely repaid for the bribery money. Why didn't he go after that? I, you call it bribery. It sounds like a very good investment to me. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, and again, it's it's requiring good faith out of a company that has seemingly operated in bad faith for a, a while now. And so I, I hope we can get more answers about this. I hope the attorney general can can add some specifics to this at some point. I imagine the agreement's got to be a public document. We should post it on our site so that lawyers can look at it and tell us if there are loopholes in this. I, it just the whole thing makes me feel queasy that that for, look, First Energy doesn't do anything that's not in its financial best interest. Why would it just voluntarily give up something worth a billion dollars over 10 years to appease Dave Yost? I mean, it, it's well, just, I wonder, because part of this, if Yost is agreeing to pause these proceedings, you know, he was probably starting to dig into this decoupling thing. And so that kind of halts that that part things right. coming out about that and publicly and so forth. So that's in their interest to at least try to put a pause on that. But if Dave Yost would have continued, if he would have pursued this to the end, you could have had a court declare that part of the law invalid. So even though the lame legislature won't do its job and get rid of it, the courts would have permanently invalidated it. And now we have this this fuzzy agreement that doesn't seem to do so. That's the part or maybe I'm yeah. wrong. You know, I just I don't feel like we know enough. There were enough wiggly words in there. Yeah. I mean, I'm really alert to this zeroing it out. It's like zeroing right. out what? What does that mean? You know, we were all home last year. We were all running our air conditioners high. I don't have air conditioning, but and we're running our heat because we're staying at home. Did somehow that give them another banner year that will be their benchmark? I just I, I I'm looking for more. I hope it's true. I hope that this is gone and that that Yost eventually goes after the other hundred, hundred million plus, man. That's a lot of money they got for a gift from these corrupt legislators. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're early in the coronavirus vaccinations, and already Cuyahoga County has a big disparity between vaccination rates for white people and black people. What's the discrepancy, Laura Johnston, and what's to be done about it? And man, how did this happen when everybody has pointed out that that black people are much more vulnerable to the coronavirus. If anybody needs the vaccine, it's that population, but the health department's not getting to them. Right. Not only has this been a long time known since the very beginning of the coronavirus that there's the health discrepancy between black and white residents, but we also know that black Ohioans tend to distrust the idea of the vaccine because of past atrocities from the medical establishment. So you'd think that this would have been top of mind. And Mike DeWine came up with a minority task force way back in May, but haven't really seen anything implemented from it yet. So in Cuyahoga County, we've vaccinated about 7.14% of residents as of Sunday, but that is the 
31% of white residents and only about 2.36% of black residents. Throughout the state, it's slightly better, about 5.86% of white residents, 2.55% of black residents. But it's just, it's not available. We, we know there's a scarcity of the vaccine. Obviously, everybody's having a tough time finding it. But when you have this system where you're like, call 90 places and hope you get an appointment, that really puts you know, people who are already disenfranchised like further behind. They might not have a CVS pharmacy in their neighborhood. They might not have a primary care doctor through the clinic or UH or Metro Health. And they might not have the broadband internet or the time to be, you know, calling all these places. So, so far, there hasn't been a lot of special outreach to this community to make sure that they get vaccinated fairly. And the Ohio Legislative Black Caucus Foundation is calling for that. They want specifics on how the state's going to increase access to the vaccine. They want, of course, help with the internet. They also want to make sure that the vaccines are giving. <laughs> well, the help for the internet's going to rural Ohio, as we know from the budget. Right, let me stop you for a second, because yeah. there was one other element in, in Cameron Field's story that boggled my mind. We we have something from the Cuyahoga Board of Health saying they are planning a, a campaign, a publicity campaign, planning one. We've been talking about the damn virus for 11 months and how this is important, and they're just planning their campaign now? That campaign should have started months ago. What's the delay? You're right. I could say, what's the delay in a lot of things? It seems like too little, too late, especially when it comes to information about this coronavirus pandemic. But I, I got to give a little bit of credit to the Board of Health. They did have a big outreach clinic at the Word Church over the weekend, which is you know has a lot of inherent trust in the Black community, and they got a lot of Black residents vaccinated. So they are doing something. But you're right. I mean, where where is the messaging? Where is the outreach? I, I mean, would, so the, would, the word, would the word church vaccinations, they wouldn't be included in the numbers that we're quoting yet? No, they would have. That was Sunday. On Saturday. Yeah. Wow. All right. So it's still terrible. All right. Well, we'll have to see. But I mean, the, 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 we're off to a terrible start. And I guess Cleveland is saying they could they could quickly make a difference in this sphere if they just got more vaccine, but they're not getting enough vaccine. Bob Higgs wrote that story yesterday. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I don't know that we've ever seen so many big name politicians make news by announcing that they are not planning to run for something. Jane Coon, this is kind of mind boggling. It's like the, the person of the day making news by saying, I, I, I'm next. I am not running. So who's the latest to take that move? Say he will not seek a seat in the U.S. Senate. That would be Attorney General Dave Yost, who I think you thought, Chris, he would be a viable candidate. But he says he, he wants to stay right where he is. He said, you know, he noted several years ago that he, he feels like he's been preparing all his life to serve as attorney general. He loves his work. You know, so he said after much consultation, thought and prayer, he decided to run for reelection instead. And he, he thinks he could really do more good in his current job. And interestingly, he said he spoke with Rob. Portman, the man who's making this seat available by retiring after 2022, you know, he said, based on his first hand accounts, Washington just doesn't sound like a terribly healthy place to go to work right now. So he needed Rob Portman to make that clear. To yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, a week and a half ago or a few weeks back, they were, you know, risking their lives with the loons that were trying to storm it. You know, I still wonder how much of this is the Amy Acton influence, the former health director who's considering a run as a Democrat. If she decides not to run, 
I'm going to be fascinated to see how many of these guys come back out and say, you know, I might just get into this race. You know? <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, on the Democratic side where we're watching, you know, to see what Amy Acton does, Tim Ryan is really getting his name out there. Like he talked to the New York Times and then Politico <laughs> has a story saying he's expected to run, yeah. you know, but he hasn't said whether he is. but. You know, he, he's really sending the signal that he's getting in it. So, you know, maybe he's not afraid of facing Amy Acton in a primary. So we'll Although, how many times? I mean, you, you mentioned it last week. How many times have we been there? We did a whole story last year. I know. A number of times Tim Ryan has seriously considered taking yeah. a step. And I, you know, I just don't know that he has the name recognition across the state to, uh, to make a serious run. But look, if he runs against Amy Acton, we'll have a, a great campaign. It might be instructive for the Republicans on how they might adjust their campaign against her if she prevails. I, I don't think anybody quite knows how to run a campaign against a candidate like Amy Acton, because as somebody pointed out, she's like John Glenn. You know, it's there's a there's a difference here. It'd be hard. Um, I, I should also mention um, one of your favorite people, Josh Mandel who you don't think is going to get in it, but he talked to the ultra-conservative Breitbart News, and, and he said he's very concerned about preserving the Trump agenda. And part of this looks like a contest among some of these primary contenders on the Republican side to see who, who's the Trumpiest one. Wow, I, I, I really will be surprised if he gets into it because there'll be reporters looking into his background. I mean, he just has opened up a Pandora's box with his actions over the past couple of years that I think will make his life hell. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might Amtrak make train travel more of a reality in Cleveland again? Chris Warnowski, this is a story that popped up over the weekend and we managed to get a piece of it yesterday. Is this real? It's sort of real. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an idea. It's a plan. And it's a it's at the very, very sort of early proposal stages. But Amtrak is developing what it calls a, quote, visionary plan to expand rail service across the United States, including the possibility of a major expansion in Cleveland that would link the city to Columbus and Cincinnati by train. The plan, like I said, is in the very early stages and is being shopped to local and state officials and includes the possibility of five new routes in Ohio, including four that run through Cleveland. It's really sort of unclear how realistic this all is right now or how expensive it would be. But rail advocates across the state were very quick to embrace any possibility of expansion of passenger train service here. All aboard Ohio Executive Director Stu Nicholson said what makes Amtrak's newest plan more realistic than previous proposals is that it doesn't initially require a significant uh, investment of local and state money outside of some initial planning cash that would be needed. But the uh, the plan recommends these routes. It's, it would it, there would be new service linking Ohio's largest cities of Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton. Uh, then it would also add Cleveland to New York City via Buffalo and Albany, Cleveland to New York City, New York City via Pittsburgh, and Cleveland to Detroit via Toledo, and Cincinnati to Chicago via Indianapolis. So you know it's. It's 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 very, very curious that that a politician whose name has become synonymous with Amtrak, uh, Joe Biden, is now the president. And suddenly we're talking about Amtrak expansion again. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a mistake. You know, he's uh, Joe Biden has been a huge booster of of rail service. It is completely intertwined with his political history and his 
is sort of political PR machine. And, and so this this feels like them trying to take like Amtrak trying to take advantage of an opportunity that th- that it might not get again. The, the the tough part, look, I think everybody would love to have those options because mm-hmm. right now take trains out of Cleveland, got to get up in the middle of the night and it's really inconvenient. And I think lots of people going to Chicago or going to Cincinnati, if that was an option, they would consider it because you can do work while you're on the train. It's roomier than an airplane. You don't have to go through all the nonsense you do at an airport. The, the question is, will they have enough customers to make it worthwhile? Because you'd think if you had that customer base now, we would have the traffic now. Or does the federal government decide after you know a century of subsidizing highways that maybe we should subsidize train travel to, because it's more efficient and it's better for the environment to get more people to use it? Well, there's there's a word that they're not a phrase they're not using in this, which I find a little troubling, which is high speed rail. And but that's no, a big investment. Right. It is a big investment, but it's also, you know, a, a very forward thinking investment. You know, if 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 we're going to go down the, the track, no pun intended, if we're going to go down, if we're going to go down this track. But I, I think that's a, a much more serious discussion we should be having because it 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 makes much more sense in the, in the I think in the long term, because I think that's where this road eventually leads is to is to having that discussion so yeah you're right and it, i mean look we're just so far behind europe and and asia when it comes to the use of trains but and i think most americans would love to see that availability come back especially could, if it was could i jump in oh. yeah i i'm so glad this story mentioned several years back mm-hmm. when then governor john Kasich actually sent back money the federal government was giving us <laughs> hundreds of millions it of dollars and I think million dollars for like high wasn't it for high speed rail it was, yeah. as well apparently he just prefers traveling on airplanes in first class so maybe <laughs> we can't bump anybody out of the train seat i guess right, right. Well, there are there are usually some first class trains i guess so he could still live in the lap of luxury uh, like anybody that's traveled through Europe and used the train systems over there, it's it's fantastic. It's a so much better way of getting around that that you we wish we had it here, but the auto industry persuaded Congress to fund the highway system, and we don't have much of a train system. It'd be interesting to see. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We'll head off into a news day. We got a Mike DeWine briefing today, Jane. What do we expect we'll hear other than that he gets his own shot? Well, he's getting his own shot this morning in a whole separate video event. So, so yeah, he'll be already vaccinated by 2 p.m. So I guess our question is going to be whether he has a sore arm. Well, I, I do think people are going to have questions about his budget of the sort that we were asking mm-hmm. at the top of the podcast. That, right. uh, you know, he hasn't done this kind of thing. He hasn't been widely available after introducing a budget with lots of big news in it. So. Right. And then there's the vaccination questions that we were talking about on this podcast with the um, the low rate of black residents being vaccinated. But part of that's his fault because he created a system that automatically made it harder on the have nots. If you would have had a central registry in each county and done things, you could have made it easier. But the whole system he designed with 90 providers, it means the people with Internet access and familiarity are going to figure it out and the people don't have it don't and so you we we said at the top this would have this effect and it's having this effect and on top of which you have the suspicion of minority communities of the government on vaccinations because in the past 
the government has done very abusive things to minority populations and testing them. It's interesting because I think when he set this up, one of his defenses of it was that was about the issue of equity because he wanted to make sure that there were locations in every single county in in the state. But, you know, the way it played out. Yeah. (laughs) What he could have done is set up a lot of providers and have a central registry that hooked people up and made sure they could get there. By, by, by leaving people to fend on their own. And look, we used to be able to do this. This country used to be able to vaccinate people in a big way. And for some reason, the, the states, the federal government have decided to, to absolve themselves of any real responsibility. And so far, it's been a slow slog. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 